Psalm 7, a Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Bush, a Benjamite. Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate, vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure, you the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. My shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword and he, he will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause, they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Great, thanks Leah. Good morning everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Great to see you all again. If you're new, uh, welcome to our church for the first time, like Spence said. Uh, glad, glad you guys are with us today. Um, we have, uh, so three weeks ahead of us in the book of Psalms. So uh, this week and the, the next two, we're looking at Psalms uh, 7, 8, and 9. I know some of you like to know where we're going, so for those of you who do, that's, that's the uh, plan. Uh, for no other reason other than they're in order, and we've never preached them. And uh, sometimes, though, the psalms kind of play off each other. A question that one psalm will ask, the next one answers. It's actually meant to be read together, uh, not as standalone islands, uh, if you didn't know that. Um, but the reason we're doing this, uh, we, so we uh, are just coming off a series in 2 Timothy, Timothy for the summer that most of you know. Uh, about that, uh, and we have a plan to preach through First and Second Samuel for most of the school year in a few weeks. The Psalms kind of relate to that uh, in terms of um, similar topic, where, where uh, David is one of the kind of the crossover points. Uh, David is one of the key figures in First and Second Samuel. He wrote most of the Psalms, uh, and so we uh, I think it'll, it'll be kind of an easy way to kind of inch into um, the the uh, sometimes trickier narratives of First and Second Samuel, but both of which, Psalms and the Samuels, uh, are such an integral part of the biblical story, and so uh, they are going to kind of relate for, um, for that reason. Um, also, there's 150 Psalms, and so to do a series on 150 in a row, we, we just don't want to do that to you or us. Uh, so we sprinkle these in, and we have been for 17 years uh, doing a couple a year or something like that on, on average. So uh, if you have a Bible, want to turn to Psalm 7, please feel free to do that. I'll, I'll get to uh, the actual text here in just a second. Um, but quick crash course on the Psalms, if you're new to them. Uh, they are, uh, I, I think, um, I don't want to say universally liked, uh, although they, uh, they have an air of accessibility to them. Uh, a lot of the... Um, 
don't know if you've ever gotten like a, a Gideon Bible with the New Testament in it. Sometimes the Psalms is attached to it as well. So it's the New Testament and Psalms because of the, I think, the accessibility, just the help that it can be on a, on a very kind of raw human level as sufferers, you know, to kind of pray with uh, David or whoever's writing uh, the Psalms. But also because uh, I believe the Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament. If it's not the top, it's right up there, uh, mostly because of its length, but because the Psalms are such an integral part to telling the biblical story and leading us to the climax of that story, which is Christ and him crucified. So if I were to give a quick crash course on the Psalms, there's a lot to say. Uh, I would say the most important thing is to see them as prophetic songs about Jesus by way of David and others who may have written some of these uh, Psalms as well. Uh, King David, uh, or gospel-forward poetry from the vantage point of Old Testament history. So, um, by this I mean there are glimpses of the human struggle in them, but, they, but especially glimpses of Jesus' struggle as a suffering king. Uh, David, again, is kind of that first anchor point, uh, one of the first ones in the, in the scriptural story about this. Uh, he is the, the um, ancestor of Jesus, both genealogically and spiritually, or metaphorically, or, or analogously, uh, allegorically, all, and metaphorically, all of those uh, together. He, he is uh, the, the forerunning type, uh, the whisper of Jesus ahead of time. So it makes sense that David is suffering so much as a leader and as a king, uh, because Jesus would come to even dial it up further and suffer, not just to suffer, but to suffer for us. Uh, and so we'll see a lot of that uh, to play out in David's life here in the coming weeks. Um, but again, I think one of the big touch points for us is to see this as more about Christ sometimes than us. Um, you, you might be aware that Jesus literally quotes the Psalms when he's hanging on the cross, which tells us, I think, almost everything we need to know about them, that again, they serve his purpose ultimately. David's, or Jesus is not hanging on the cross quoting David's story and saying this is what David went through. He's saying, actually, these words were always about me. Uh, they were they're, because I'm God's son. I was the one that wrote them into existence. I'm the ultimate capital capital W word of Scripture that all other smaller words find their place underneath and kind of fall subservient to and and point to. Um, in fact, you might not be aware of this, but you actually rarely see the Psalms quoted in the New Testament in reference to us. Now that does happen sometimes, but it's actually quite rare. It's much more common to see the the Psalms quoted in reference to Jesus his experiences, his sufferings, his burial, uh, his rejection, and his triumphant vindication and resurrection and justification, all of which we'll actually see glimpses of here today uh, as, as, uh, as well. Psalm 7 actually has some imprecation to it, uh, a calling down of curses and judgment on enemies. So there's different types of psalms. There are psalms of worship and praise and thanksgiving. There are messianic psalms. There are royal psalms. Based, uh, uh, what's the word for it? Um, uh, coronary psalms, like Psalm 2. And then uh, there's these imprecatory psalms too, which, uh, where the author might not just do that in the psalm, but a big part of the psalm uh, is calling down judgment on his enemies. Which, if you know anything about the New Testament, like on a perfect one-to-one level of this psalm is a model for prayer for me, if we approached it that way, uh, doesn't really fit. And so we have to kind of step back and ask, how do these themes grow and change uh, throughout the story? I saw a, a funny, I think it was a meme, uh, and I just, I'm thinking this on, on a, I said this first service too, but I forgot to check my facts uh, in between service, so take this for what you will. But there's a funny meme when um, Russia invaded Ukraine 
And uh, is there a Netflix show called, is it Tiger King? Who's the guy with the tiger? Uh, is it Tiger King? So did some of you guys ever see that too? Pretty sure that the tiger's name is Putin, right? Uh, I hope so, because this is what I'm going off of. Uh, I've not seen it, but there's this funny meme going around uh, saying that, and that tiger died, that Putin, Putin died right, right around that time. So there's this funny meme going around uh, saying, Christians, you've got to be more specific with your imprecatory psalm prayers, because the wrong Putin died or something like that. So um, that's not a political statement at all. Uh, that's just, it's just funny. Uh, so, but, it's, but there's a nugget of truth there in the sense that the imprecatory psalms are, are very rarely or if ever, or if we ever sort of try to make them a way we pray, we heavily qualify who our enemy is, uh, right? Or we should, uh, especially when you don't see any of the apostles model imprecatory psalms in a physical way in the New Testament. And so again, it, it doesn't, do they serve as models for prayer? Of course. A, a lot of our worship songs draw from this imagery. Uh, they, they tap into the human experience beautifully, but a lot of the pieces don't fit when we try to make it this one-to-one uh, kind, of, kind of thing. So, um, so again, the question then is, how does Jesus qualify these things? How does he himself say these words into history and serve as that kind of ultimate final word for us rather than it being uh, something for us and something for us to do? All right, uh, context is uh, verse zero. So this is actually an important thing if you didn't know about the Psalms. Uh, the verse zeros in your Bible are actually a part of the biblical text. They're not uh, the, what the English um, publishers uh, put into your Bibles. Those are ch- like uh, paragraph heads. Those are different. They put those in there to kind of help you figure out, you know, how to navigate your Bible a little bit. Verse zero, though, is a p- David wrote this. Uh, this, this. This is not just... Um, uh, here is kind of a summary uh, of it. But David wrote this, uh, and God inspired David to write this, and so it's a part of what God wants us to hear. So the context uh, in verse 0 is a Shagayan uh, of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Uh, a Shagayan is a word for a lyrical poem composed under great duress. And from what we see in the first few verses, verse 3 in particular, David has been falsely accused by a Benjamite. A Benjamite is of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. So uh, as far as we know, this is a, an unknown event of David's life, not recorded elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, and so again, from context, we kind of piece together that there was just this thorn in his side. There is an enemy of his who wanted him dead or who um, was hoping he would be tried or kind of kicked off the throne uh, many people did not want David to be king. They didn't like how he ruled. They didn't like how he was kind to his enemies. Uh, they didn't like uh, his uh, sort of his, his countenance, how joyous he, he was uh, at times, even during war. Uh, lots of reasons why they didn't like him, but uh, we don't know exactly which of those or all of them of, of who it was for Cush. But, um, but we, know, we know that at least he was the reason that David wrote this. I'm in trouble. And this guy is a problem for me. And it's causing me to think about my life and think about um, guilt, themes of guilt and judgment and, uh, and all this stuff, and, and which leads to worship and need for God to save and, and all of that. So um, that's, that's the big context. Now, one really big picture observation I'll just say here before we dive in a bit deeper is uh, the prayer is kind of, maybe you notice this, but it's kind of all over the place, isn't it? Uh, but prayer often is that. For human beings. It's not, there's not always this one straight line. We say one thing and it makes us think of something else and sometimes we don't have words and so we just groan and just think of things uh, and, and keep our prayers very short because it's so hard to know what to say sometimes. 
Um, now, there's some semblance of order to this, but it takes some careful tracing, I think, to see his flow of thought. But, but that's part of the point. Uh, themes of pain, suffering, sin, wrath, judgment, hell, related things like that are obviously heavy terms, um, but they're related, and they're very layered in Christian theology. Um, you know, sometimes in life, we use the phrase double meaning. You know, uh, if someone says something, we'll say, oh, that also kind of ironically means this, and we'll say double meaning. Um, that, that's sometimes true in Scripture as well, the etymology of words or of the grammar, like there's different layers to it. Um, so hence, the, and I'll talk about some of that as we go, but, but just to sort of state it, uh, that it's not always this one neat kind of physical thing. There's different kind of layers to the onion. Uh, so we have then this beautiful but kind of messy, honest, raw prayer of this human being just like us 3,000 years ago uh, who had severe trauma and angst, uh, who's crying out to God for, for deliverance and to process this. So what I want to do for the first part of the sermon is kind of trace David's prayer and flow of thought and derive theology from that. Uh, so kind of on a human level, we'll see uh, some things there. And then we'll kind of uh, twist things a little bit and look at this more through the lens of Christ, as I was uh, alluding to before. All right, so he uh, starts personal and narrow. Um, oh, and then the title of the sermon, Sleeping in the Dust. There you go. All right, so he starts uh, narrow and personal, and he widens out. If there is some order to it that may help, it's not quite this simple, but I think this is true. Uh, if there's a concentric circles idea, it starts narrow and it gets wider. Okay? And, and all those have implications for our theology and life. Uh, so he starts by saying, God, save me from those who falsely accuse me. But then he switches gears and says, if I have done this, if I have guilt on my hands, then let my pursuers overtake me. It's a really interesting turn, isn't it? Uh, so you see themes here of false accusation on the one hand, but then honest self-reflection and yearning for justice, even at his own expense, on the other hand. And uh, so he's kind of saying, you know, I don't think I did this thing I'm being accused of, uh, but maybe I did. Uh, at first I wasn't so sure, but maybe I did unintentionally. And it's kind of an aside there. This is, I think, if, if we feel like our theology of sin, um, you know, uh, and sort of the problem in the world and in our hearts ever gets kind of small or um, led by something other than Scripture, these are helpful places to go. Uh, we should read this because it really heightens how severe sin is. In this case, um, talking about sin even in unintentional ways, even unintentional. Uh, it reminds me of when God commanded sacrifice to be made for unintentional sins in the Old Testament. Uh, something had to die when people committed an act of evil unintentionally. An animal had to die. So even for that. So uh, it's, again, we, we might not think that, we might kind of qualify things and say, oh, it's, not, it's a white lie, not a lie. Or we might say it was an, it was an unintentional sin, not an, in, not an intentional one. But, uh, but we see that evil is a problem. It, it's, uh, intentions aside, it strikes so much at the fabric of our relationship with God, there's no wiggle room. Just a clean cut right down the middle. And right there in the mix of it is a God who serves both as judge and also savior. And so uh, more on that mix and how that can kind of coexist uh, in, in just a minute. All right, then he widens out uh, to the next circle, which, which is talking about his enemies more. So he says, he says to God, rise up against 
the rage of my enemies and uh, use your righteous anger for good, God. Vindicate me. Show that I'm innocent. Uh, expose those who lie and cover up and mistreat and falsely accuse. It's, it's things, I'm summarizing there in part, but basically things like that kind of strewn throughout the, the psalm. So this is David's yearning for justice. This is like, you know, a human being wanting resolution to the unresolved tensions. It's like uh, there's no bow tied yet on this problem, and, and he wants that done, and he can't do it so himself, and so he, he's crying out to God to right wrongs and put things back in a neat order where it feels really good again and that, that everything's right again in the universe and in the world and, and in our lives. I think, again, this is why we're drawn to psalms like this, because it's almost impossible uh, not to relate to that. I, I think I've said to you guys before, I, um, I personally may not think this is fine, but I personally feel like being misunderstood is way worse than being disagreed with. Like being disagreed with and having clarity on where we disagree and then kind of like figuring out where that is and then just disagreeing, it's like, that's like easier to deal with a lot of times. It's still hard. Um, but being misunderstood and then having false accusation or having tension or unresolved whatever in, in the midst of that misunderstanding is much, um, talk about losing sleep, you know, sometimes. That, that's, that's, that can gnaw at you uh, a lot more. And I think you partly have a guy here before God who's dealing you know, with that. And who knows, maybe Cush is spreading this false accusation. People are starting to think worse and worse about David. He has no control over the, the spreading of lies and is just eating away at his, uh, at his soul. And so I think that, again, uh, this is why we're drawn to this. It's the cry of humanity from all time. It's in and around us every day, this yearning for resolution and justice. Uh, it's big and small things. It's, it's even in things like, um, I was thinking last week, uh, the feeling we get when left on a cliffhanger at the end of part one uh, to a movie. So I'm reading Dune right now because uh, Aletha wanted me to. No, not just because she did. Uh, I actually showed up one day. It's on my nightstand. I'm like, oh. Uh, but no, I wanted to. She's read it, and we want to see the movie. And so I, um, if you guys have not seen the Red Dune, it's a long uh, kind of sci-fi. It's, it's really good. But um, the, the, the movie is uh, part one, part two. Part one is out, and it's only like two-thirds of the book. And if you've seen it, it's like, and sort of know the story, it's like, it's not even a cliffhanger. It's like, uh, oh, we just, I guess we got done with two and a half hours, let's just stop it. You know, like right here, there's no, barely any kind of like, any mini, like a lot of, a lot of part ones have some mini resolution, you know, at the first part. But I think a lot of part ones and part twos now are following this where, you know, directors and creators of different types, they, they're like, oh, we can have five hours? What, to tell a story? Take it, I'll take it, you know? And, they, and you know, Netflix, of course, episodal things is taking off for that reason. But, um, but I feel like it's kind of like this with, you know, with Dune or any, any movie you see, any cliffhanger. If there's something that doesn't feel settled yet, right? It, it's not done, and we, we want to see the next installment because it feels better to see the ending. Um, now, that's a small thing, but we, we also have a cry for justice with big things, like not feeling like a certain prison sentence is worthy of the crime. Uh, or double standards. Man, this can, double standards really rile us up, I think, in our culture. You know, like, it just, we, we see them from a mile away, we like to call them out, double standard, you know, and, uh, and it bothers us uh, because it's unfair. Um, there's many other things we could say, but David's prayers here remind us of some good news, that God is a judge, he's not aloof to this, 
And when viewed in this light uh, of it being good news and, and it, with a futuristic bent to it, there will be no lingering injustice in eternity. And so as hard as it is to you know, experience that in our life, internally, externally, um, this is how Christians can be tempered a bit in our angst and our anger and um, needing to feel like we need to solve all the problems of the world, like it's on us to do that. We can we sort of, be, with this theology in place, we can be released from that. Not that we're never involved in solving problems, but uh, there's some things, most things are just too big for one person or one church or, you know, one lifetime. Uh, you know, I think, I think part actually what's going on here is David saying, I can't bring the resolution, right? I mean, otherwise, why would he pray? Why are you wasting time here on your knees or writing lyrics? Like, what are you doing? Uh, and I think it's a big part of the Bible's th- mantra is there's this problem, you can't do it, only God can. To non-Christians, Christians, unspiritual, spiritual, far from God, near to God. There's this thing, there's this problem in you and outside of you, and you can do nothing about it. And so we pray, right? We go to God. We invite him in. We cry out and say, may you save where I can't. May you resolve where I can't. May you tie the bow neatly where I can't. Will you undo the cliffhanger or finish it where I can't? It's basically akin poetically to saying we can't save ourselves by our works. Only God can by grace. Okay, then he widens out to one more circle uh, and says, uh, and reflects more universally on God's wrath and how important of a characteristic that is for him. Uh, he says, God is a righteous judge who displays his wrath every day. So I think that phrase, every day, and I would add an every way kind of to that. Like it's, um, it's comprehensive, it's cosmic. God, God is a righteous judge, and it's good that he's against evil. It's good that he is going to right all wrongs. Um, but it's cosmic here. So, so whether we did, we did something wrong, or our enemies did something wrong, or anyone else in the world has done something wrong or sinned, God's wrath is coming against all unrighteousness. All right, so um, as I say that, and as you hear that, and uh, you can maybe get a sense for, even in the psalm, but outside of it too, uh, that wrath is like a really good thing, as we've been saying, but also problematic at the same time when we understand sin and evil as an internal problem not just external. And I think you see David wrestling here with this. It kind of reminded me, too, of David's experience with Bathsheba, this woman he committed adultery with and impregnated, and then he kills her husband so he can, he can take her for himself. This is, uh, we'll look at this story after the New Year sometime. I forget what day it is, but it's, uh, we'll look at it in greater depth. But it's an amazing story. Amazing isn't terrible, you know, but also, like, there's so much rich theology. And so, and then, uh, in that story, if you remember this, there's this guy named Nathan the prophet who comes in and, and is going to call out David by way of telling a story to David about a king, a rich king, who stole a poor man's only possession, which was this one little lamb that he loved very much. And the king says, I need that, I want that. And he sent his people to go get that. And the poor man's left with nothing. And he's wailing, and the king has this, uh, you know, this one more thing he doesn't need. All right, so David then, hearing this story, gets extremely angry. I think the touch point here with Psalm 7 is David, uh, in, in this story, wants justice. When he's hearing this story, he wants resolution. Right? This is, this is unfair 
that there's this rich king and poor shepherd boy, and that, and, and that there's this great unfairness, and he's angry about it because he wants this injustice. He wants to exact revenge on, on this, this, uh, this, this rich king. But right in that moment, you guys read this story? Right in that moment, he flips the mirror right, at, right on David, right? Flips the mirror around and says what? You're the man. You're the one in this story. You're the one I'm talking about. So do you see the movement from wanting justice to saying, oh, crap. You see the movement between, that's like, that, that is the movement of reading the stories of the Bible, is reading about terrible people who are actually just like us at the end of the day. Psalm 7 is a microcosm. Second Samuel um, 11, is it? I forget, 12, is a microcosm. The whole scripture, though, the law itself is meant to be a mirror. It's sort of to draw us into our need and to show us that help is beyond the hill. It's from above and beyond the sun, not from in here. Romans 2, 1 to 3 says this very clearly. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Did you see just the, the messiness of all this and the layeredness of this? It's like uh, in the Psalms, like, this is why it's messy and sort of disheveled. It's like it's right to want justice out there. Uh, we have, we're being attacked, and, and, and the Bible's not saying we're... we're not mindful of that. I mean, God cares about us in that state. But at the same time, there's this level of, man, if I really want God's wrath to come into the world, do I? Do I really want that? I mean, if I, and if I really do, then what am I inviting on myself? So verse 17 then uh, is really how this all comes to a head. This is the last verse, and it says, again, uh, the solution or sort of the landing uh, spot for him in his song is, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Now, if you've read the Psalms before, that can just be a, a flyover, flyover verse. Like David says that about a bazillion different ways in the Psalms, and you know, it, it might help us and console us and lead us to sing too, but it's, it's, it might not make you stop and think. It's a very abrupt ending. 16 verses of chaos and wrath and guilt and judgment and these different concentric circles and cliffhangers. And then he just says in one verse, this is how I'm landing the plane. This is how I'm going to finish the song. This actually does it for me. I will sing to the Lord. I will thank him for his righteousness. And I think the abruptness here actually claims that the solution is simpler than we sometimes think. For those of us in the crosshairs of God's wrath, the solution is not in anything that we do, but notice the pronoun. It's his righteousness that matters, right? His righteousness, not ours. It's his. And the Bible makes a big deal of this uh, all over the place, especially in the New Testament, where it says there's two kinds of righteousness in the world. There's a righteousness that comes from us and what we do and how we obey. 
in, uh, and there's a righteousness that comes from God out of heaven and becomes a person and dies in our place. Philippians 3 says this, Romans 10 says this, a couple of big places and elsewhere as well. Uh, but they're not the same and they never, ever cross over. They, they never blend, ever. Paul's arguments make no sense if you think they blend somehow. Or yeah, there's two, but they're kind of like yin and yang and that's sort of the Christian life now as we take that. Um, it's, they're different, they're apples, apples to oranges. And so here then, uh, the question of what is God's righteousness is actually the wrong question. The question should be who. God's righteousness is a person. It's Christ crucified. Uh, this, this is, I mean, in a way, David's way of saying, I'm thankful that my righteousness doesn't have the final word. I'm thankful that God's righteousness cancels out and absorbs the wrath of God in my place so the wrath can circumvent me. I'm thankful for Jesus who serves as my refuge from coming judgment. And I will sing praises to him for this reason, because the same God who was rightly and gloriously against all evil has worked in the world to make a way of escape for evil sinners like me. And it came at great cost to himself, so that justice is done unfairly on Jesus, and so that mercy can flow like a river to us, his former enemies who are now his sons and daughters. And so I'm starting here to get at the how this happens, but it's important to see in the psalm that like the psalm has a final word, so does the Bible have a final word. Like the psalm has a beginning and an end, so does, so does the, uh, the psalm does, so does the Bible have uh, kind of an overarching beginning or the problem is stated and then there's, there's a landing pad, there's a solution, the righteousness of Jesus. But you can also see the same idea if we kind of move on here from tracing the prayer uh, uh, even as important as this is, uh, to seeing this is actually not even just about us and our prayer and not even really about David ultimately, though it is, uh, but about Christ and, and his words. Like Jesus so often in his ministry makes them his words. Um, that's not something you should just do a couple of times that Jesus does, by the way. When Jesus does that comprehensively, that's an invitation into seeing all the Psalms is somehow doing the same thing. That's how you're supposed to read them, how we're supposed to read them. The Bible never says, never shows us a different way, ultimately, uh, other than to see them as his words for his son, his words for the church to share in the glory that comes first through Christ and his sufferings for us. So uh, that would be to say, then, that this psalm is ultimately a shagayan of Jesus, not just the shagayan of David, uh, a prayer of lament and distress, but the, the Shagayan of Christ uh, is to read this psalm as though he fulfills it. He ends cliffhangers as though the gospel is the point. And I think when you do it that way, you see a neat story arc between suffering, burial, resurrection, and love, which is the story of the whole, the whole gospel, Christ event, uh, ultimately, uh, but here embedded prophetically in a single psalm in the middle of the Old Testament. Let's just walk through this. So first is the suffering piece. So what this means is, on a prophetic level, Psalm 7 is saying, one day another David, David's distant descendant Jesus, would come into history and be unfairly accused and blamed for things as well. Things he didn't do. And similar to David, he would accept divine punishment even in light of the unresolved nature 
of the accusation. He will say, I've done no wrong, but let fire come down on me anyway. And so the idea is that even though there, there would be no guilt on his hands, he would become like one who did sin because he became like us, taking the full weight of God's wrath, the ultimate arrow, being torn apart like a lion, and trampled to the ground. Um, so again, if it wasn't clear before, this is an example here, uh, verse 3 especially, which is, I'm primarily referring to, uh, but this is an example of a part of a psalm that Christians never pray, shouldn't pray. Like we don't pray, if I've done something wrong to someone, God, may you tear me apart like a lion. Like, I hope you don't pray that. I mean, if you do, then let me just invite you to stop. Uh, that's, that, that's not something to mimic. And I think there's this natural instinct here that we don't, that's a part here that we, we don't think in terms of this anymore because as Christians, we have a different view of guilt, right? It's, uh, we don't deal in karma, right? Christians don't deal in karma. Christians don't deal in conditionality. Christians deal in unconditionality. We, we believe that God is remove the locusts, the crosshairs of God's wrath onto himself so he takes the bullet. And so when we sin, which is all the time, we, we, bear, we feel brokenness. We bring that to God. We ask forgiveness. But we don't bring down the curse on us. Someone else did that. This isn't religion, right? And so David here then is uh, playing the part of a pre-Christ figure. He, he is, well, when Jesus says in his, in his um, in his ministry, when Jesus says, I'm the son of David, these are the things he's pointing back to. What David kind of started to say here in the Psalms, I'm ultimately saying now in my ministry, that though I did nothing wrong, may I be torn apart like a lion anyway. Psalm 7 is a picture of the one who did the sin absolving, who said, though I am innocent, may harm befall me. That's what Jesus said for you. Though I am innocent, may uh, may harm befall me instead of humanity, instead of my church, in, instead of sinners, my enemies who I want to make my friends. You can even say here, moving on, that uh, the pit digger in Psalm 7 points to how Jesus would become like one who would dig himself a hole and fall into it. Doing so, in other words, intentionally. He orchestrated the whole thing. In love for us, he became like an enemy trapped. He became like a buried one under the weight of our sin, put to sleep in the dust, bearing the curse of Adam for all humanity, dying for dead ones. So to the one that God said, to dust you will return, uh, a David of history comes in and says, I will be put to sleep in the dust, which is death, death imagery, uh, which gives a nod back to Adam and that, that curse that God spoke over humanity. Uh, and then Jesus comes and says, I will ultimately be put to sleep in the dust. I will ultimately die so I can be buried and take your sins far, far away and remove the curse from my people. And then vindication. Uh, so like David cries out for vindication and asks God to arise and awake in light of his own sleeping in the dust, so does Jesus. But this isn't just a cry to his father for vindication, but his own divine awakening or resurrection from the pit, which vindicates him, but also us. So it clears us. Romans 4 says, Jesus was delivered up or, or crucified for our sins and trespasses. Then he was raised from the dead for our justification or vindication or that our name would be cleared. That's, that, that's what's kind of wrapped up in that word. 
we're justified, we're made righteous or made right, or our name is cleared through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something we could never do uh, on, on our own. And so you, so you see that, that kind of vindication that Jesus brings, his own vindication, that actually he was innocent, actually he was the Son of God, is something he shares with sinners. Actually, now we're going to be okay because of his work for us. And, and then this last piece, uh, enemy love. I think this is uh, such a big part of David's life. I, I look forward these next several months with you to uh, uncovering more of this with David's life. Uh, I think, I, maybe I said before, but I'll, just to be uh, sure, I'll say this. Um, David was the only king in the Bible who showed kindness to his enemies, who wanted to who looked out for it. And many people were super bothered by that, more religious people uh, who, who operated more in a tit-for-tat kind of, uh, you know, punishment-based worldview. Um, his friends, you know, were just bothered by David doing this. But, but David, uh, that's a big deal for David. Uh, his enemies, he wanted to eat with him. He, people furthest away from him, he wanted to bring close somehow. Uh, didn't always, you know, and some people didn't even want, enemies didn't even want that, but many did. It's really fascinating to see Christ in that, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do that more than here. But for, for Psalm 7's purpose, it's a, again, flyover verse, or can be, but when David, uh, in verse, I think it's verse 3, says, when he was concerned about not repaying his foe with evil, did you guys catch that? Before God, he says, if I've done something wrong to my enemies, then I should be crushed. It, it's, it not, it's not just if I've done something wrong to my friends, but if I've done something wrong to those who hate me. And so the implication in that is he doesn't want to, right? This, is, this too is a whisper of Christ and what he's like. So like David was like that, so was Jesus. And, and through his death, would he take his enemy's sins on himself and forego the opportunity for revenge? In other words, he forgives. Uh, forgiveness lays down the opportunity for getting back uh, and, and for vengeance. It absorbs it. Uh, it's hard to forgive because we're saying, I could say something back, I could hold this over a person to make them crushed by it, but we absorb that ourselves. Uh, and that's what God did. Through Jesus, he suffered and he forgave through his blood. All right, so now the reason I'm saying all this is because the final word of Psalm 7 isn't your prayer. It isn't even David's. It's the prayer of Jesus to the Father about you and me. Which then, in what might serve as the final plot twist of this whole thing, puts us in the place of Cush the Benjamite, the one who accused David in the first place. You see, the instinct we have when we think too highly of ourselves uh, is to put ourselves immediately in the place of the protagonist and the David and say, oh, I, I have cushed the Benjamites in my life too. May God rain fire down on them. But actually, you and I are the one who accused God, who spoke poorly of, of Jesus, right? Who rejected him, the Bible says, who rejected his love and grace, who said, we don't need you. These are all things that Cush, in a way, is a, is a whisper of. We are like him. And so, Psalm 7, verse 0, in New Testament language, is a shagayan of Jesus, which he sang to God the Father concerning us sinners. Let the repayment that is due our enemies fall on me so they can become our friends. This is what Jesus said to his Father 
in the garden. This is how he prayed. This was his posture. This is his mission, his MO. This is what he thinks of you. This is how much he wants to fight your battles and has. This is the heart of God. This is the beautiful thing about the Psalms. It shows us the heart of God in salvation. Not just that he saves, but that he wanted to. And what he bore that we might escape. This is the ultimate and furthest reaching point of Psalm 7. That you and I might open our Bibles and hear God himself call out to us with a word of consolation, not condemnation. Like Romans 8.1 says, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have received him into their life. There's lots of condemnation in this psalm, right? But directionally, we have to figure out where is it going? Where is the locus of wrath pointed? Is it on us or is it on Jesus? That's the ultimate crux of the matter. So against the bad news, you could say, of his wrath against evil because we are evil, we see the nail-pierced, guilt-stained hands of the Son of God who never did anything wrong. But as the Bible says, who became sin in our place, who takes the brunt so our sins might be absorbed. Um, This is what we see. This is the the echo, the whisper, the the furthest reaching point of theology, the anchor of our souls. And he says to us, don't fear. Uh, You know, as one of your pastors, I'll just make this the last word. Like, the thing I really want you to hear in this is the voice of one who really internally, emotionally, and spiritually, and physically went to war for you. Like, uh, and he could have taken all these off-ramps. Um, but, you know, in the face of the problem of the wrath of God coming into the world, he stood in its path. Uh, the, the father and the son schemed together for this. Um, and I think, like, so us as we gather around this, we, we need to hear God call out to us through this. Or it just at best becomes like, yeah, this happened to a guy once, or you should pray like this, or if you write song lyrics, borrow from this. Uh, that's not what it's saying. These psalms are, are sometimes less about you than you think. Um, and so be careful with who you identify as in the psalms. Sometimes like David, sometimes not at all, because David is a Christ figure. Sometimes we're on the outside, we're not slaying the giant. We're Israel on the side of the valley looking at David slay the giant. And we're receiving the benefits of that giant slaying. Does that make sense? Be careful who you identify yourself with when you read the Bible. There's a wrong way to do it, and there's a right way. So it's a wrong way to do biblical theology and a right way. In this case, we are primarily in the place of Cush, the enemy, uh, who David invites, invites a tearing down a pouring out of wrath upon himself uh, for. And because of that, everything changes. We have hope for a bright future. We are covered by his love, covered by his sacrifice, covered by his bullet taking, and the greatest of cliffhangers in history, which is how will a just God show mercy to sinners? The greatest cliffhanger is tied a bow upon and is resolved at the cross where God shows justice and mercy and love all together at at the highest level. So if you believe, you're saved. If you're a Christian, if you continue to believe, you're saved in that knowledge and in that application of faith, not in anything you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the word of the cross from Psalm 7, the Shagayan of Jesus, uh, the true and better David.
uh, who would come into history and fulfill all scripture. As Jesus, you say that in your ministry, I came to fulfill the law and prophets. Um, Thank you that you fulfill the Psalms as well, like in Luke 24, how you opened the Psalms with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and pointed all throughout the book and showed them where you and your sufferings were in that book in particular. Um, And so, God, I pray that we would hear you, uh, the voice of our good and true shepherd, call out to us with a word of uh, comfort and consolation and grace uh, in people who are... um, accused, rightly or wrongly, people who are sin up to, in sin up to their eyeballs, uh, whatever we've done, the, the word here is that someone, a king, a good king would come into history and absorb all that threatens us. And um, we, again, thank you for this beautiful, complicated, layered, uh, and yet in a lot of ways simple gospel that Jesus is all we need. As you yourself say, God, in your word, your grace actually is enough. It's sufficient. In your name we pray. Amen.